The first reading is from Genesis chapter 1, verses 28 to 31, on your handout. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with, that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all of the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw that he had made all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And our second reading is from Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you all. Um, my name is Dan Jevons, for those that don't know me. I've been coming to this church for a long time, and I want to start by acknowledging that I'm really not qualified uh, to preach in the sense that I don't have theological training, and I'm not a regular preacher. The reason that I'm here today is that we're talking about a topic that I have struggled with uh, for about the last 15 years or so, uh, which is, what about work? And the reason I think this is important is that for many members of this congregation, we spend the vast majority of our time in work in various forms, paid and unpaid. And if you like, the majority of our time is spent outside of this context, the church context. And so what we do with our time in that context is really important. But I think the other thing I wanted to talk about is the fact that, you see, I've always felt called to what I'm doing But in conversation, sometimes, it's hard to reconcile what I do with the traditional Christian view of work. And I say traditional because 
I've found this a lot, both in sermons implicitly and also in conversation with other Christians. If you come to the next slide for me. So, uh, I don't know how well you can see that, but, but we have this sort of hierarchy of Christian uh, callings or work in which at the top you see people like Guy who are in paid Christian employment. And at the bottom you have uh, people who are in corporate law and banking and, of course, the lowest of the low, uh, the, com- the manager in an oil and gas company. And so in this sort of alternative Christian universe, you have to sort of reconcile what is it that I do every day and the fact that I truly feel called to it with the fact that this hierarchy seems to exist in the mind of certain people. Um, And I think the challenge is how do I, in my day-to-day, start to figure out why do I feel so called to what I do? And I think that is something, as I said, that I've been struggling with for a long time. But I also want to reconcile, reconcile something else which I think is also important. For many people who are in unpaid work or perhaps taking time off, so much of the value that we place on our existence comes from what we do every day. And in every context that we talk, if, how many people, you know, you have that early conversation where you say, what is it you do? And it's as if the value that you hold as a human being is entirely related to what you do. And that's also important to deal with because actually what I want to try and unpack this morning is that I don't think that's true. So let me talk about some of the mistakes that I think the church has made in trying to deal with this. If you go to the next slide for me. Um, this is a gentleman by the name of Simeon Stylites. Um, Simeon lived up a pole for 37 years uh, near Aleppo and he was an extremely passionate Christian. In fact, He lived in ever-increasing bodily austerity, fasting uh, significantly, and his reputation expanded. And so what Simeon would do was every afternoon he would walk out of his pole, stand on a platform and preach to people below, and then he would return to his austerity. It's perhaps a little bit of an extreme example, but it makes the point that I think in the church we've had this approach where actually we withdraw from the world, we go into our holy huddle, And we only go out to preach at people, and then we return back to the holy huddle. And I think that's a risk that we run, and it's something which we see actually relatively commonly, even today, I would suggest. If I go to the the next slide. But there's another extreme as well, which is part of our Protestant tradition. This is a gentleman by the name of Max Weber. And he wrote a very interesting letter. He's a German sociologist, and he talked about... Protestant asceticism and the spirit of capitalism. And he argues that the spirit of capitalism was actually found in the 18th century Protestant church. And the reason he does this is he walks through some of the logic that I think actually still exists in some of our thinking today, which goes along the lines of the acquisition of wealth is wrong due to the fact that it brings temptation to idleness and to its enjoyment, but actually labor is a divinely appointed thing. It's the ultimate end to life as a whole. And therefore, as a Protestant, it's important to focus on the work and not the contemplation, and that the wish to be poor is analogous to the wish to be ill, and instead we should make good use of what God has given us. So that's how the line of argument goes. And What this did, Weber argues, is release the shackles on on the profit motive. Because what it says is we should 
work as hard as we can to get as much as we can to give as much as we can to the kingdom. And to a certain extent, that's not wrong. The issue with it is that what that, if you overly simplify it, does is it takes us to the point whereby the only purpose of secular work is to create wealth in order to support Christian ministry. Finally, I'm going to turn, if you go to the next slide for me, to our modern evangelical church, rooted in 18th century traditions, and we have these great missionaries and heroes of the church, like Hudson Taylor, who built this modern-day concept of tent-making. And this is obviously steeped in Pauline tradition. But what Hudson Taylor did was he trained to be a doctor. He went and then he worked with thousands and hundreds of thousands of Chinese men and women giving ad hoc clinics. And he used that as a forum for preaching the gospel. And so he came up with this concept of integrating into the culture and understanding where they were at and using that to build his ministry. And again, nothing wrong with that. And it's become the hallmark of latter-day missionary organizations. But in the modern workplace, this has been picked up by evangelical churches as the sole purpose of work. In other words, your purpose in secular work is to sit next to non-Christians and tell them about Christ, if you like, to embed yourself in their world and then to evangelize. Now, I personally have found all of these things very unsatisfying. Let me come to each of them in turn. You can't consider secular work as contaminated time and the rest of it and the church aspect of of your life being the main act. That doesn't work. And inevitably, it leads to a relatively shallow engagement with the world. But you also can't see work as purely a means of generating financial gains. Again, if all you're doing is spending your time to give to the church, that's extremely unsatisfying for the amount of time that you spend as a human being in that context. And then finally, it's not possible to believe that the only reason I'm in ministry in the secular workplace is to tell others about Christ. Again, not saying that that's not important. But at the end of the day, 90% of the time I spend there is not going to be engaged in those activities. And as such, I've been trying to figure out what is it then that we're doing in that workplace. And I've come to believe that actually what we do with that 90% of the time is a profound aspect of our Christian walk. And I want to unpack that a little bit in the remainder of this sermon. So turn with me, if you will, if you don't have it up already, to that Genesis passage. Um, And the passage goes, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. And then it goes on, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. The interesting point here is the term rule. God grants dominion and authority. If you like, he gives all of us a sense of kingdom. And we're enabled to rule over that kingdom. He's ordained that we are never ceasing spiritual beings, made in his image. And we can exercise that kingdom over the range of our effective will. Our personhood is bound up in our ability to will and act as an autonomous entity. 
And that gives us the liberty to love, to act kindly, and to care for and support others. But it also provides our ability to sin. So returning to that covenant in Genesis 1, it's implicit that the dominion that God grants over his creation is meant to be exercised in relationship with him. That's the whole purpose of it. And of course, the personification of this is Jesus. And hence, it's little wonder that Jesus spends so much time talking about the kingdom of God, something we don't dwell on very often. But it seems to me that Christ's mission was to reconcile humanity to himself, both through his death on the cross, but also through the radical transformation of Christian lives by conforming and aligning our wills to his will in the context of deep relationship. Now, if you go with me that far, what that does is it removes the divide between sacred and profane. And in the context of work, it means that everything that we're doing is holy. And I love this thought because what that means is that what I'm doing every day is both important to God and also the outworking of his his kingdom. And so the question is, what does that look like? How do we start to live like that? So if you turn with me to the second passage, to Mark 12, um, and again, a a really interesting passage because it feels a little bit like uh, some of the conversations that that I have on a day-to-day basis. And Jesus is receiving a grilling from the Sadducees. He's really getting it in the neck from them. And he's just answered a, a series of really tough questions extremely eloquently. And just then this scribe, if you like, Uh, This Pharisee, they think, pops up and he says, which commandment is the greatest of all? And it seems this question is genuine. And he wants to know what sits at the heart of all of this. What's in the middle of the Torah? What's the key to living? And so it's quite an important question that we as Christians need to wrestle with. And so Jesus' response is something that that we should really listen to. And he says this, The greatest is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment that's greater than these. So the Jews refer to the first of these words as the Shema, which means to hear, and it comes from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. And the Shema is regularly recited in the synagogues, uh, in worship and in daily prayers. And what it's saying is that to love God with heart and soul and mind builds on some core Jewish concepts, which is to love God with all that we are. And the other important thing here is the word for love, and the word here is agape, And as I understand it, again, being no scholar in this space, agape love is more of a doing word than a feeling word, although it involves both. It requires action, demonstrating our love in practical fashion. And then the second commandment is from Leviticus 19, verse 18. And the point here is that there's a balance in what Jesus says. The person who loves God but doesn't love neighbor is gravely deficient. But the love for neighbor quickly denigrates into humanism or sentimentalism unless it's grounded in the love for God. 
And importantly, the love for God is the first commandment, not the second. And what Jesus is saying here is that the love of God is the foundation upon which all the other commandments depend. So the scribe goes on, truly teacher, what you've said, you've said well that he is one. And it seems that the scribe hasn't come with hostile intent. In other words, unlike the Sadducees, he's not trying to prove Jesus wrong. He's really trying to understand. And Jesus sees his heart and responds in in verse 34, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And in other words, what Jesus is saying here is, the kingdom of God is the outworking of the two commandments that I've outlined. It's the core of the Torah, and in understanding this, you, the scribe, have moved closer to that kingdom. And then I want to look at the end of the passage, because actually I think there's something fundamental at the end that we often skim over. And it says this, and from then on, no one dared to ask any more questions. You see, to me, I think what's happening here is that the teachers of the law are so engaged and so, and so impressed, or rather terrified, that actually his intelligence has baffled them and they don't want to engage any further in the conversation. And I think this is where our understanding of Jesus is flawed in that what's clear from this passage is that Jesus was the most intelligent man that ever lived. I'll say it again. Jesus was the most intelligent man that ever lived. Now, I think if you asked 100 Christians who was the most intelligent man that ever lived, there might be all sorts of answers, but I don't know how many would actually come back to Jesus. And I think it's important because it's this lack of understanding of the ability of Jesus to impact on all aspects of our lives and to really influence the way in which we think that actually is our biggest failing in bringing Jesus into our day-to-day. If he is the master of molecules, the inventors of the law of physics, the person who created genetic codes, until we surrender our arrogance and are willing to learn from him on any subject and to be disciples of the world's greatest teacher, we'll never fully understand what it means to be a Christian. And I think the key thing is, going back to that concept of kingdom, conforming our will to his necessitates a willingness on our part to learn from him as teacher, if you will, to become a true disciple. So how does this relate to our work? Going back to that. What it means is conforming the range of our effective will every day into the teachings of the teacher. In other words, bringing his kingdom into our workplaces. And I think, for me, what this means is that the place where we spend most of our time, the workplace, becomes the most significant sacred event. Because that's where the rubber really hits the road. And that's where we need to learn to honour Christ and conform our actions to him in that place where he's placed us. And throughout scripture, we see countless examples of this when you look for it. God seems very rarely 
to take people out of the context that he's placed them, whether paid work or unpaid work. Much more, it seems, that his intent is to transform their attitudes and their ways of doing those jobs in the context of where he's placed them. Let me give you some examples. Abraham was a wealthy cattle trader. Daniel was a senior civil servant. Joseph was a prime minister. Luke was a doctor. The first Ethiopian convert was a central banker. Paul, of course, was a tent maker. Jesus was a carpenter. Dorcas was in fashion. Lydia was a businesswoman. Cornelius was an army general. And Simon was a tanner. You can't find a more diverse list of professions. And as I said... When Jesus meets these people, or when God meets these people, he doesn't call them out of these professions. Instead, the focus seems to be on that transformation where you are. And I just bring this back to some very unfashionable scriptures. If you just go to the next slide for me. I found these very challenging. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and to mind your own business. Nevertheless, each of you should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. Each one should remain in the station he was when God has called him. We often don't dwell on these things, but it's actually that stay that is often as important as go. Because our primary calling is to be a disciple of Christ where we are. And actually that's more difficult. And I think the concept of the kingdom of God operates within the sphere of influence where the individual Christian is placed, whether in unpaid work or in Christian work full-time or otherwise. And Christ's intention is to transform ordinary people into agents of his kingdom. So what does that look like? At the end of one of the toughest weeks in my working career, I'm working through how do you take everyday challenges and how do you transform them into the ways that Jesus would do things? How would he answer the questions that I face with wisdom? How would he respond? How would he care for people? And I don't have all the answers. Um, And I certainly don't claim to. I think I'll just want to work through some practical examples. Earlier this month, my line manager took the difficult decision to move around 30 people to a different office. It involves a number of them moving homes over a vast distance. And a number of them are part of my team. A lot of them are going to have to uproot their families and their lives in order to do this. And they're going to move to a new office concept, which is going to be brand new for them and involve a lot of different contexts. So how do I care for those people in that? How do I show the outworking of Christ's kingdom in the context of that situation? Another example, I'm currently dealing with a breach of ethical code of conduct. I'm likely to have to deal fairly severely with the person that's been involved in this? How do I deal with him in a loving way? How do I make sure that I show Christ in that situation? How do I show what his kingdom looks like? 
Then a final example, perhaps I've been learning what it means to not work as well. On Fridays at the moment, I'm taking time off to spend time with Eliana, who screams a lot. Um, and the question is, how do I deal with that? How do I show Christ in that situation? How do I make sure that I learn to show love in family life and to bring Christ's kingdom there? So I'll conclude here. I'm convinced that loving God and loving neighbor means that discipleship needs to go far beyond the confines of where all too often we've placed God. The challenge I'm working through is how, when I find myself in situations like the ones I've described, how do I sit at his feet? How do I learn from the teacher? And how do I show what the kingdom of God looks like in those contexts? Let's pray.